Hello there, this is Fiona, host and main GM for What Am I Rolling, a twice-monthly RPG one-shot podcast. This is a bonus Q&A episode to tide us over to the next one-shot, and it is indeed a very special Q&A, as a few weeks back I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing British games consultant, writer and designer James Wallace, the former founder of Hogshead Publishing and director of the games consultancy Space. James has been involved in a wide range of incredibly exciting game design projects over the years, but is probably best known for co-designing Once Upon a Time, a card game about competitive storytelling, and for the extraordinary adventures of Baron Munchausen, a multiplayer storytelling role-playing game based on the stories of the 18th century adventurer Baron Munchausen. You may recall we actually played a fantastic one-shot of the extraordinary adventures of Baron Munchausen in episode 25, and I have to say it's been one of my favourite sessions to date. I highly recommend to try it out at parties or if you're introducing new players to the world of role-playing games. If you want to find out more about James and his work, be sure to check out his website. That's www.jameswallace.com. I'll put links to James's website, work and recommendations on the What Am I Rolling website and in this episode show notes. So I guess we'll just start off with a very boring question to begin with, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you and what do you do? I'm James Wallace. I'm a games designer and consultant. I run a consultancy called Space with three A's, which was very funny when I came up with it 10 years ago and grows more grating every time I have to say it. And what the company does is we talk to large organizations, whether that's businesses or government departments or universities, on how they can use games, games thinking and games methodology to do what they do better, whether that's engaging externally with customers and clients or kind of training or thought processing or understanding what they do better. And we've worked with Greenpeace, we've worked with Shell, we've worked with Experian, a couple of government departments. But beyond that, I lecture in games design at London South Bank University. I develop games, mostly tabletop games, for commercial release, my best known being the card game Once Upon a Time, which I co-designed in 1990 with Andrew Rilston and Richard Lambert and Baron Munchausen, which is out in its third edition from Fantasy Flight at the moment, came out a year or two ago. What else do I do? I run a series of workshops on teaching people how to design tabletop games called the Game Design Masterclasses. I write, I have a column in Tabletop Gaming Magazine and I review for them and I've just finished writing a history of games from 6000 BC to the present day. Co-writing with Ian Livingston, one of the guys who set up Games Workshop and then he ran IDOS and he's just one of the godfathers of the British games industry. So uh, I've spent the last few months working with him, which has been an absolute joy. Uh, And that's me. How did you get into game design? By accident, mostly. I never intended to become a professional games designer. I mean, we played board games and card games as a family. I think like most families do, we weren't obsessed with them. But when I was at boarding school and it was not a terribly pleasant experience and I discovered role-playing games in my second year and they gave me an escape, which basically allowed me to survive. And I do mean that quite literally. But it gave me an escape and an outlet for my creativity as well. And within a year, I'd started doing a fanzine about them. You know, fanzines are what we called websites before there was an internet. And we printed like 50 or 100 copies of, of each issue. But it got out there and I started meeting other fanzine editors, going to games conventions. And then I went to university and I did a different fanzine and started writing for White Dwarf. Then when I left university, essentially I took my gap year at that point, ended up at Gen Con, the American Games Convention, where I discovered I had a reputation as a games designer because I'd written for White Dwarf, because I'd done this fanzine. 
And despite never have actually having designed a game at that point, and I completely fluked my way into my first role-playing book contract, and then in the mid-90s set up a games company, Hogshead Publishing, to publish role-playing games in the UK. Role-play was still a big thing on the way down from its peak in the early 80s, but was still viable. What I didn't realize getting into it was that it was very, very difficult to make a British company work. There just wasn't a big enough market in the UK. So we pretended to be an American company. We printed everything in the States, priced everything in dollars. I kept American business hours, which completely ruined my sleep cycle. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, from things just kind of progressed from there. And Hogshead had originally been in 10 full-time employment, but it became pretty quickly obvious that it, that wasn't going to happen. And we started off with three full-time members of staff. And six months in, I had to make everybody redundant, including myself. And I then worked, I went and got a job in magazines because I trained as a journalist. My formal training is as, as a journalist. I spent most of the 90s writing for magazines and newspapers. I was on the Sunday Times for about 18 months, uh, around about the turn of the millennium. Hogshead was essentially a hobby or became something that I did in evenings and weekends. Though by the time I came to actually sell the company at the beginning of 2003, it did have two full-time employees. It's just neither of them was me. Um, <laughs> Once upon a time, it become a, let's say, a hardy perennial. It's never been a bestseller, but it sells a decent number of copies every single year. It's sold about a third of a million copies globally now in 12 or 13 different languages. So I have this reputation as a games designer. Games that what I love, it's clearly what I seem to be good at as well. It's what I should be doing full time and made the jump and set up the consultancy. What you said at the beginning about how sort of role-playing games save your life as well, I can definitely relate to that. It's that sort of, you definitely feel that you would not have been the same person had you not tried it. And it's interesting because it's becoming a lot more, it's a lot more popular now. It's having a second renaissance. It's quite extraordinary, the current popularity. If you told me even five years ago that, you know, every new D&D &D 5 hardback would be on the New York Times bestseller list mm -hmm. and podcasts and actual plays of role-playing games would be, you know, raising literally millions of dollars in a day on Kickstarter. Um, it's just phenomenal. And it does mean that there is an opportunity to, for people to actually make a living out of it. Though a cry that's going up in the industry a lot at the moment is that the streamers and the, you know, the people doing the actual plays are making a lot more money than the people who are designing the games. Mm. Um, this is a complaint I had. I'm aware of two separate podcasts that have done streams of the extraordinary adventures of Baron Munchausen. One of them got the title of the game wrong and did not make it clear it was a commercial product. And the other one didn't even give the title. So, oh, you know, wow. so I'm making literally no revenue of people performing my game in public. And one of these has, it's had half a million views on YouTube. So, you know, you can understand my frustration. Oh, 100%. It's so important to, you know, make sure if, if people are interested, they know where to go and who was responsible for it. Absolutely. Because, I mean, apart from anything else, there's some amazingly talented creators working in role play and in games design generally. And every so often, one of them will make the jump and break out into the wider audience. R.A. Salvatore, who created Drizzt, the Dark Elf, the Drow, mm -hmm. which is now, a, you know, a melting series of fantasy novels, was a role-playing game designer. I mean, back to the days of Dragonlance, Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss were, I think, actually employed by TSR when they created those. That was the foundation of, of an entire franchise of publishing that was colossal in the 1980s and 1990s. And just recently, an old friend of mine, Gareth Hanrahan, his first novel has just come out. He used to work for Mongoose Publishing, writing role-playing books, and more latterly, Pelgrain Press. And so he seems to have made the jump. And it happens from time to time. But these people, you know, they learn their craft, they learn their skills in role-playing games. And if you go back to the role-playing games they've worked on, the work is just scintillatingly good. Because it's such a forum for ideas. It's such a melting pot for 
really intense creativity and creating these essentially toolkits that other players can go out and use to create their own worlds and their own adventures. So Once Upon a Time and Baron Munchausen are described as sort of storytelling games, storytelling role-playing games, I guess. I was wondering why did you sort of focus on the storytelling aspect? It's another one. It was never planned. I mean, I teach computer game narrative at London South Bank University. But what really interests me is games that allow you to create new stories rather than games that retell a story that has already been written by someone else, where you're kind of, you feel that you're the protagonist, but in fact, most of the action is canned and most of the decisions are pre-made. And if you do get a chance to branch the paths, then you're fairly sure that those paths are going to rejoin pretty quickly. Once Upon a Time, as I say, was co-designed with Andrew Rilston and Richard New Year Party in Scotland. Where Andrew showed me this thing that, you know, jotted on the back of some old dead business cards. And I went, this has got real potential. And we threw around some rules for it there and iterated the design a few times and playtested it for, I think, two years before we showed it to a publisher, Atlas Games in America. And the first thing John Nephew there said was, this is great, but it needs more playtesting. And I think working through that and working, because rather than just playing the game, we were also looking at books about fairy tale, because it's a game fundamentally about creating your own fairy tales. For people who don't know the game, you're all working on the same fairy tale. Everyone's got a handful of cards with fairy tale archetypes on, whether it's characters, locations, items, aspects, which are basically adjectives or events. And you tell a story using these in your hand and everyone has an ending card and you're trying to steer the story around to your particular ending. But you can be interrupted and you win by playing all the cards in your hand and playing a ending. And it's fast and furious and quite silly. But at the same time, we were looking quite seriously into Jungian archetypes and Vladimir Propp's morphology of the fairy tale and the scholarly work that had been done on this stuff and the kind of the building blocks of story and how do they work and how can you fit them together. And that kind of gave birth to the interest. And then a few years later was out. Andrew and I set up a journal, not an academic journal because we weren't academics, but it was essentially that kind of digest-sized scholarly articles format called, well, it's called initially Interaction. And then we got um, threatened by a trademark lawyer. So it became interactive fantasy, <laughs> uh, which was specifically about games creating stories or creating stories in a playful context. And we printed articles on, you know, the nascent days of doing this stuff online and role-playing communities because video games with video were not up to that level of storytelling yet. And we got some fantastic people writing for us. One of the things we commissioned uh, was an, an article called I Have No Words and I Must Design by Greg Kostikian, one of the great American games designers who again, came out of role play, went into digital design, digital games design. But he was part of the same generation as Warren Spector, who was another old role-playing game designer who went and set up Disney Interactive. And you know, that kind of crew of intensely exciting, thoughtful games designers. His article, it's about the necessity of a critical vocabulary of having terms to describe the ideas that you are playing with on a kind of a meta level. And that article is still actually used in games teaching today. And we printed that. And I'm still really, really, of, you know, <laughs> of all the things that we did at Hogshead and uh, Interactive Fantasy was the first thing we ever published. And we lost a bunch of money on it because this is 1994 and PDFs didn't exist. The internet was in its nascency. We knew there was an audience for it, but we couldn't get the product to them. There was no way of, you know, online commerce didn't exist. You know, the technology simply was not there. Amazon wasn't there. International shipping was still a really huge deal. So we did four issues and we lost a bunch of money on it. But printing, I have no words and I must design. And giving Greg the context in which he could do that piece of work, I'm still really, really proud that we were able to do that. I can imagine. That, that's amazing. <laughs> but you were asking about the ideas. It's, um, yeah. I mean, Baron Munchausen does seem like a kind of, if you look at it and you look at Once Upon a Time, there's a clear transition of ideas between the two. Yeah. 
and it's cited as the first story game, the first of that kind of small format, single session, GM-less role-playing experience where the story is more important than the individual goals and there's no experience points. And I did not sit down to create a new style of games. What I sat down to do was, having been running this company, having had to, you know, initially employing a bunch of my friends and then making them redundant, the company had partly been set up to publish my game designs and Andrew's as well. Andrew was one of the uh, the original employees. And none of that had happened. We'd focused on our core line, which was Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay under license from Games Workshop, because that's what was earning the money. And so I just went, look, this is ridiculous. I'm going to put out something that's got my name on it, if only to just kind of massage my soul. But I didn't want to lose much money on it. So I just did this tiny little 24 page game that I'd had an idea for in the shower one day. And it just became this hit in a completely unexpected. Actually, I can, I know exactly what did it. It was a chap called Ken Height. He was literally dragging people over to our booth at Gen Con going, you have to buy this. Yes, Ken. Yes. If you met Ken, you do what Ken asks you to do because to do otherwise is unwise. <laughs> and well, I think we sold out at the show and people were writing rapturous reviews. So it's just, I mean, where, where did all this come from? It's what I'm interested in. I suppose I can't really nail it down any, any more tightly than that. But I love taking stories apart and seeing what makes them work and how they fit together and how they're structured and how much you can stretch and bend and twist them and, and do unexpected things with them. So talking a bit more about Baron Munchausen then, whilst the rules are very straightforward, it's obviously the book itself is styled so that it's written by the, you know, century nobleman and adventurer, Baron Munchausen himself. So I wanted to know, like, how did you go about writing that character? How did you get through that process of becoming the Baron whilst writing it? <laughs> Well, it's various points. The first point was I'd been actually trying for a couple of years to design a conventional tabletop role-playing game about Baron Munchausen and his stories, which I had loved since I was a child. I mean, before the Terry Gilliam movie, mm. I mean, the books were written, the original stories were written by an itinerant librarian and metallurgist called Rudolf Rasp, whose life story reads like something that came out of one of the Baron's stories. Um, <laughs> I'll let you dig him up on, on Wikipedia for oh, yourself. Yeah. So I'd loved the stories and was trying to convert them into a conventional role-playing game, and it just didn't work and didn't work and didn't work. And then I was in the shower one day, and just in that kind of liminal space that showers do so well, I just thought, well, the, the reason it's not working is the Baron Munchausen stories, they never happen. They're only ever told over a drink. So really, this needs to be a, a game about how you tell stories over a drink. And bang, the whole thing just appeared. The trouble is, when I say the whole thing, I mean like the four or five paragraphs of rules that essentially make up the whole of the game, because it doesn't have an awful lot of rules, and you can't sell five paragraphs <laughs> as a game. So the second thought was, now I have to find a way to pad this out to a saleable length, which in the original edition was only 24 pages, admittedly American letter size, but so almost a four pages. Mm. But still, I think the original is 15,000 words, and then the second edition was 30,000, and then the current edition is like 50. But it has expansions and extra things you can do with it. And it was about this time, bizarrely, I was in a game shop in Suffolk, where I'm from originally, and spotted a facsimile of a game from the early 19th century called Every Man to His Station, published by John and Edward Wallace, which is my name, mm -hmm. obviously. And so I bought this thing and did some digging. And it turns out that they are, they're in the family, descended from, you know, in, or connected to games designers from a couple of centuries ago. Oh, wow. So, and I'm, I'm spoiling the, the, the conceit of the book here. The conceit of the Munchausen book is that John Wallace met Baron Munchausen, commissioned him to write a game, 
the manuscript, the book that you buy is the game, which John immediately realizes is far too avant-garde for the market of the early 19th century, which having just written a history of games, I can tell you was frantically backward. The story within the book goes that I discover these papers concealed in the family papers, dictated by Baron Munchausen to Edward Wallace, John's son, and I bring it finally to print, seeing that the market is ready for this kind of thing. Which is so obviously ludicrously made up that clearly nobody could take it seriously, except occasionally I do get emails from PhD students going, I understand that you have access to the family papers of John and Edward Wallace. This is tremendously exciting. And I have to write back and go, I'm sorry, but it's a game about making shit up. You know, as I say, I trained as a journalist and I've been writing fiction off and on since the early 90s. I've got, if you dig around there, I've got stuff in a whole bunch of anthologies. My first short story was in a, an anthology called Villains, edited by Neil Gaiman, of all people. Before he was Neil Gaiman, yeah. um, wow. back when he was just a jobbing science fiction fantasy author. But anyway, so I'd written a bunch of fiction, and I discovered I'd never thought of myself as a humor writer. But a number of people started going, James, we love your stuff. It's so funny. And I'm kind of, is it? I don't think I'm actually putting jokes in there. But I became aware that people were finding the rhythms of a lot of my prose had a kind of a humorous tone to it. I'm not going to say it was actually funny, but, you know, it had that lightness. So, you know, I took a stab at doing something in the style of Baron Munchausen or the way I would interpret his voice. And it just seemed to work and people seemed to enjoy reading it. It did take a long time to write mm. because I did most of it. As I say, I was I, was, I had a day job on the tube. I had a tiny, literally pocket sized computer, the, the Scion 5. They sold it as a personal organizer, but it, what it was was a portable word processor about the size of your typical smartphone, but with this amazing fold-out keyboard, tiny, but you could touch type at reasonable speed on it. So I would do about 300 words a day or 400 words a day just sitting on the tube, if I could get a seat on the tube. And so it came together in this really, really piecemeal way. But what it did mean is that I could kind of digest and, and think about things in the back of my mind for the rest of the day and maybe come up with one or two good jokes. But then once you've got the density of one or two good jokes a day, it works out as one or two good jokes every two or three hundred words. Mm. So, yeah, so in terms of, I don't know, it was an experiment. Like I say, it was purely a vanity project. It wasn't meant to be a great new step in role-playing games or something that would continue to earn me a living at any point, really. It was, I'm running a publishing company. I'm going to do a book with my name on it. Damn it. <laughs> um, and the fact nobody is more surprised that it's still out there than I am. It's nice to have something that's maybe so unexpected to become so big and still well-loved. And I think the unique thing about Baron Munchausen is that with each uh, edition, you've added more stuff. So here's a version that you can play with younger children. Um, yes, uh, children, the inbred, and those who are very drunk. Yeah, exactly. I think is, is the line, yes. The other thing I quite like, the idea of using text media. So either online, so via forums and emails and stuff like that. And it's still written in the style. So first you talk about the telegraph, and then you move on to sort <laughs> of things. And I was like, that's, that's genius, because obviously now obviously you use Skype and everything like that. But actually using the text format or emailing, using the timestamps to time and interruption. <laughs> it was, I thought that was quite cool, actually. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I was really pleased with that. I have to admit that bit wasn't actually playtested as much as it should have been. I was going to ask, how often have you heard someone's done that by email? <laughs> That's the only thing I wondered. Really? Not very often. I mean, I'm kind of aware people go, oh, we played it online. And Well, why didn't you tell me at the time? Mm. But I, I've never actually seen it being played by a group that doesn't have me involved. Mm. But various people said, oh, we really, really need an online version. So I'm, I'm glad it's there. So what do you think are the best ingredients for a good story? So one that you would maybe tell on Baron Munchausen? Oh, a good Baron Munchausen story. It needs to be no more than five minutes. 
it needs to have a ridiculous premise. I mean, the way a Baron Munchausen story works is you are challenged to tell it by one of the other players. So initially, it should be something that you're by surprise because other players will relish in your look of consternation as you are challenged to tell the story of the time you got George II pregnant or whatever it is. And you just have to start telling the story at that point. It is, it's kind of what makes improv work. It's coming up with surprises and keeping the idea fresh, which is because like Once Upon a Time, it has this interruption mechanic. You pay to interrupt someone. So other players start throwing in the bizarre interruptions and the, you know, the weirdness that ostensibly you might have forgotten to include. And you as the storyteller are actually in a powerful position because you can choose whether to take those interruptions and build them into your story or reject them with a coin of your own and push them back. So, I mean, one of the joyous things about the Munchausen stories is they take place at an absolutely perfect moment in history where, you know, the Age of Enlightenment where science is coming to the fore and scientific discoveries and genuinely world-changing inventions like the very early steam engines, hot air balloons, and things like that. But at the same time, you've got the kind of science that Jonathan Swift parodies in his travels with people extracting sunlight from cucumbers, all of which was considered just as valid as steam locomotion. And at the same time, the church is very powerful and people believe in the power of God, and they also believe in the power of magic and witchcraft. So there's a lot of superstition. You can take all of those things and just throw them into this joyous melting pot and pull out what you want. And then, of course, people build in references to, to modern day stuff as well. So the ingredients for a good story is having a good group of players. The worst experience I've ever had with Baron Munchausen is when I was playtesting it, one of my early playtests with my regular role-playing group. And so I explained the premise of the game and I said, you know, challenge me to tell a story. And they flip through the examples at the back and pull one out. And I tell the story and they sit there and listen politely as I tell it. And they do not interrupt. And the game doesn't work unless you get interruptions. They don't necessarily have to be great. The interruptions are what keep it flowing. And you read through the rules and you think, it's going to be horrible. People are just going to be interrupting me. But no, they give you a little moment to breathe and they give you stuff that you can choose to build into the story or not as, as you feel fit. So it's the players. I mean, I think almost all good games come down to having good players. The wrong players will, will ruin a good game. The right players will elevate a bad game to make it a fun experience. Related to that, what do you think makes a good RPG player then in general? I mean, there's many, many different styles of RPG these days. But I think a willingness to commit to the narrative, because RPGs, for me, or a good RPG is about the sense of immersion, whether it's a silly game like Paranoia or something more serious like my other recent indie game, Las Vegas which is quite dark and bleak and surreal. I think if you commit to your character, you know, commit to playing your character in a consistent, in a way that the other players can believe in the character and can understand who the character is, or alternatively, the mystery of who the character is, is interesting. And the consistency of the narrative and the world underlying it. Even if as a player, you don't necessarily understand all of that. And there's a lot of games with so much rich, deep culture underlying them that certainly for a novice player, it's impossible to really know what's going on for your first few sessions. Games like RuneQuest or Emperor of the Petal Throne. But as long as you're willing to immerse yourself in the world of the game, then I think everything else gets a pass. Not knowing the rules, fine. Not understanding how your character casts magic, that's fine. You're a confused mage. That's an interesting character. One of the most interesting characters I ever played was an Ars Magica character, and he was a theoretical magician scholar. He studied magic. All of his spells were research-based. He had no useful magic whatsoever, but insisted on going on adventures with people. His main talent was actually taking the credit for things that other people had done. The player characters 
were frust- constantly frustrated by him, but the players, I hope at least, enjoyed his presence enormously as part of the party. That reminds me, actually, one of the other things, which didn't really happen when I was role-playing a lot in the 80s and 90s, but happens more and more now, and I think um, things like Critical Role really encourage it, is out-of-game communication between the DM and the players, saying, well, where do you want the story to go? What aspects would you like to bring to the fore? How can we explore your character in an interesting way within the narrative? Which I think is fantastic, because it, it does truly make it an exercise in group storytelling. Whereas... In the old days, you know, you'd buy a module and you'd run the module and it would just be there are great modules and there are less great modules, but very little of it would be tailored towards the player characters Mm -hmm. in any kind of particular way. And so they never really grew as characters. They never developed much of a backstory. Obviously, I'm generalizing massively here. Some campaigns they did, but in an awful, the games themselves, for the most part, did not encourage you to do this. And I think as the form has developed, and I'm so glad that it is continuing to evolve, I think that's just in terms of understanding how these stories work and how interactive stories work. I said earlier on, I'm fascinated with what makes stories work. My great thing is interactive stories. Interactive storytelling, I believe, is the, the greatest leap from telling medium. I think it's genuinely that big a leap of a storytelling medium in which the audience is are also the participants within the story. You are telling the story mostly for yourselves. I'm mean, obviously a critical roller doing it for an audience of millions. But this idea of group storytelling, rather than the audience passively sitting back and just absorbing the story from either one storyteller or a group of actors, and the story itself being pretty much on the fly, the way that works we are only really beginning to understand. And I talked about critical vocabulary and Greg's article, I Have No Words and I Must Design, was about a critical vocabulary of game design, not of game narrative. And I'm now talking to a whole bunch of people about, we don't have a vocabulary for experiential and the emotions of gaming, what we get out of a game, how games affect us. The words do not exist. And I I reviewed games a lot in the early 90s. And then as I became more and more of a professional, I gave it up because I felt there was a conflict of interest. And now I've gone back to it again. But there are things I want to say about games and I'm aware there are no words for them. And I find myself resorting to food metaphors an awful lot. I talk about umami and, you know, the fifth taste, the sensation of kind of fullness that is similar to what umami is, the the completeness, the satisfaction. We don't have a vocabulary, but it's coming. You can't just create a vocabulary and go, I made up some words, use these. It doesn't work at all. It has to evolve from perceived and understood need. And we are getting there. And more and more games are slowly evolving along these lines. Board games like Fog of Love. I had a fascinating discussion oh, with I it. I love Fog of Love. Oh, it's so smart. It's such a good I, game, yeah. I feel really bad. I dissed it when the Kickstarter was out because it just looked so mechanical. Yeah, and I was so wrong. And the metaphor I use, particularly with my students talking about video game storytelling and video game design, is that if you map video games onto the history of cinema and, the, you know, say, okay, imagine they're evolving at more or less the same pace. And occasionally there are the massive leaps forward where a thing happens and we just everything changes. I think somewhere in between the introduction of sound and the introduction of color, to use the movie metaphor, the introduction of sound would have been the advent of 3D, Hmm. which was probably the mid 90s. And the introduction of color, I'm not sure (laughs) uh, because it hasn't happened yet. I think I know what it is. I think it's artificially intelligent NPCs that can understand natural spoken language. I think the moment you have characters in a game who understand what you say to them, suddenly we will stop shooting at them as much. Because the vocabulary of violence is incredibly easy and has always been incredibly easy to model in games, whether those are tabletop games or video games. Press a button, bang, 
you know, and in programming terms, you're moving one dot on screen over another dot on screen and something falls down dead. Very, very easy to do and very satisfying in the very basic way. One of the four basic kind of food groups of what makes games satisfying. And I can talk about this at great length, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> Killing something is, is one of those kind of four food groups. The other ones being exploration, socialization, and achievements, or words along those, those lines. But I think the moment people feel like they're people rather than, you know, three-dimensional puppets being, you know, controlled within, a, you know, within an environment, once they, once they understand what you're saying to them, that, I think, will leap video game design forward in a really colossal way. But, of course, in have that, of course, people, characters talk back as if they're human because they're controlled by humans. They're GM characters or the other players. And I think for a long time, role-playing games have been telling more interesting stories in more interesting ways than video games have been able to. And I think that's going to continue for a while because much as I would like to play video games with intelligent NPCs, I don't see it happening for a while. Going back to sort of uh, Fog of Love a little bit, the idea of having creating a story but with only two people, and Starcross is another RPG where it's the same sort of thing. It's a relationship between two people but using Jenga blocks, uh, a bit like yes. Dread in a way. It's I was offered Dread. Hogshead Publishing, we were offered Dread to publish. Oh, really? I turned it down because I thought it was a novelty. Oh, well. like, it's like the Fog of Love thing. Again, I'm a prat sometimes. It, it happens to the best of us. But. <laughs> but yes, that kind of thing, that kind of moving away from dice. I mean, dice are kind of one of the great underlying pillars or have been part of role-playing games for so long that people think they're almost an integral part of what makes games work. And actually, there are so many other ways that you can make decisions and create suspense within a game. And of course, you know, there are now places that you can go out to and play games. There's loads of games events, there's games cafes, conventions most weekends, and, you know, just going around to a friend's place or even going out in the 90s, rocking up at cafes in central London with board games and being told to go away. <laughs> Admittedly, it was Cosmic Encounter, which is a bit of a table filler and would have burnt two hours. But, you know, these days they're more usually more than happy to see you and quite often interested in the game as well. Most pubs have, um, you know, some kind of games night. Most local areas have a games night in a pub going on at some point. If you just search, um, I was going to say WhatsApp, not WhatsApp. Meet up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> They're very similar. They're similar names. Yeah. I'm old. I did this technology thing. It's beyond. No, it isn't. Um, I mean, the whole culture is changing. It's so much more out there. I mean, I, I lived through the British equivalent of the satanic panic in the early 80s. The idea that role playing games were actively bad for you, that we're recruiting for cults. And we knew it was bollocks, but how do you convince people when you're a geeky teenager that what you're doing is actually really healthy and, you know, almost a survival mechanism? But where games are, just as, as a form now, I mean, tabletop and face-to-face -face games, which for me is, have always been the most interesting. And people say, is this a boom? You know, is there going to be a crash? Is there going to be a glut? There's so much happening on Kickstarter. There's so many new releases coming through. Is this sustainable? And I do see retailers running into problems, not being able to stock all games. It's such a churn. There's so many new titles it's difficult for anything to kind of get a foothold in the industry. And games that might be becoming perennials and modern classics are slightly falling by the wayside. But at the same time, there's so much energy there and there's so much novelty and the field is growing and people are creating really interesting new games. It's healthy all around. And just people getting the idea that video games does not have to mean video games anymore. I was at a video games a conference today and a number of speakers just kept making nods towards tabletop. Because, you know, there's an increasing awareness in the industry that tabletop is making a good deal of money. That, you know, we've got in Europe, there's $2 billion tabletop. Uh, oh, hold on. Games Workshop is a billion pound company these days. 
based around, you know, miniatures figures. And Asmodee, the publisher and distributor based in France, they changed hands, I think, two years ago now um, or last year. So two billion pound companies, essentially. I don't think, you know, as a designer, as a small publisher, hard to get rich. But there are viable careers to be had as a tabletop designer, whereas you know, 20, 30 years ago, that would have been a real struggle. You would have had to work very hard and be a star. Mm-hmm. These days, there are a number of people running companies, much like I ran Hogshead, kind of in their back bedroom or in their spare room evenings and weekends. So how often do you get to play or run your own games? Do you prefer being a player or a games master? I don't get to play nearly as much as I would like to. When I sat down to run the very first playtest session of the new edition or the recent edition of Paranoia, I suddenly realized that I had never actually played Paranoia, which is a game I'd loved since it came out in 1984. I had only ever run it. I'd only ever GM'd it. And I still never played Paranoia. (laughs) So I tend to end up in the GM seat, kind of almost by default. And I do enjoy it. Being a GM, if you're doing it properly, if you're coming up with the ideas and you're playing the characters and you're keeping all of the story and everything that might happen in your head, that's a, a mental exercise. For me, the way I sort of maybe measure my success or my sort of ability is afterwards when they go, wow, that was really good. I really enjoyed it. I ran a session of Grant Howitt's uh, Pride and Extreme Prejudice. Oh, fantastic. Oh, it's, it's such Grant, a good Grant was one of my co-writers on, the, on this edition of Paranoia I was just talking about. Oh, fantastic. It's me, Grant and Paul Dean, who's ex-Shut Up and Sit Down. Both of them, creative powerhouses, very, very funny in very different ways. It was just a delightful project. So with the Pride and Extreme Prejudice, the Regency um, ladies and their giant robots, and I had two players who'd never really played an RPG before, and at the end, uh, the, the girl came up to me and she went, this is amazing, can I take the sheet? I'm going to play it with my friends tomorrow. And that for me was like, <laughs> wow. I, so I was trying to get all these rules in my head, making sure that you know people were having fun, and they were like, yeah, this, I had so much fun. I think that's the thing, is as long as they enjoy it, and they, like you said, be immersed in whatever setting you're running, that's all that matters. Absolutely. And, you know, if players are not enjoying the GM style, quite often they will make their own fun. They will take the story and run with it and head off in different directions. Luckily, it's never happened to me, but I have seen sessions basically kidnapped by the players who just took over. You know, the old thing of, you know, the GM's plotted in one direction and the players go off in another. It's a group exercise. The GM is responsible for some of it. And, you know, a genuinely bad GM can, can ruin it. But thankfully, there's fewer and fewer. And this is one of the other things we were talking about. People are seeing how other GMs, particularly good GMs, operate. You know, their tips and their techniques, and they can learn by observation. Mm -hmm. Whereas it used to be that, you know, you bought the box or you played with one other group of people, whoever had introduced you to the game. And that was the style you kind of adopted. And unless you started going to games conventions, of which there were far fewer than there are now, and saw, you know, got to try a whole bunch of different GMs and you know, you kind of got very set in your ways. Yeah, I, I, people are able to learn how to GM and find the experience much less scary because essentially they can copy people they've seen do it well rather than having to kind of hold their nose and jump in at the deep end. So what would you say are your favorite RPGs to either read or to run? And what is it that they get right for you? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> Empire of the Petal Throne which was one of the very early, I think it was the second RPG that TSR ever published in like 1975. It uses D&D mechanics, which are horribly clunky, but it's the first deep culture game. It's the first set in a world that lives and breathes. It's created by Professor M.A.R. Barker, Phil Barker of the university. He was a, I can never remember if he was a linguist or an anthropologist. I think he was a linguist. 
this world, Tecumel, was, was his life's work in the Middle Earth was Tolkien's. He was obsessed by it. He created languages for it. He created entire living cultures for it. And it's really difficult to get a handle on as a novice player. So you tend to play a barbarian who's just arrived to seek their fortune in the Soliani Empire, which is kind of, it's the level of technology roughly of the Roman Empire, but could not be more different. <laughs> the gods really exist. It's actually a far future game. A pleasure planet fell into a galactic rift and has had no contact with the rest of the thousand years, but technology lying around, which are now magic items. And it's just, there's such depth and richness to this world and believability. You can play it almost as a game of social nuances and faux pas, or you can go on colossal adventures and, and you know, delve into the underworlds. They have a thing, each city has, we're supposed to have a thing called the Ditlana, where every thousand years it's just leveled and they rebuild the city again, which means every city has this layer of tombs underneath it. Um, I wonder how we might use those in the game. <laughs> the game is what you want it to be. It's not you are mighty adventurers. You can be merchants. You can be legionnaires. You can be rebels against the tyrannical emperor. You can be part of the emperor's guard. It's just such a lovely, lovely world to immerse oneself in. It's, it's joyous fun. Don't get to play that very often because finding people who are kind of conversant with the world mm. and it needs a GM who does know the world, mm. which is a, a hard point for it. And it's never really been a commercial success. There've been a whole bunch of different editions, but um, none of them have really taken off. A game I haven't played yet, but I appear in as an NPC, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4th Edition. As I said, I used to publish Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay mm -hmm. through Hogshead Publishing, but that was the first edition. And the new edition just looks absolutely sumptuous and beautiful. It looks like the version that the game should always have been. Dying Days of the Holy Roman Empire, Early Renaissance. And this is a world, I wrote a bunch of novels for Games Workshop 18, 19 years ago. So it's a world I know in, inside out, and they've just got the feel right. And it's, a, it's kind of almost the antithesis of the D&D world. It's a world where you're not after glory and riches. It's a world where, as a traveling adventure, you're just trying to survive. You're just trying to get through the day and find somewhere to sleep. A grim, gritty world of perilous adventure, to use its own cover line. And the new edition is just absolutely beautiful. And as I say, I haven't played it yet. Can't wait to. Other games, I, I mean, I love, I love indie games. Whatever's coming through on the indie scene, love to try things out, single session stuff. Avery McDoldno, who did Monster Hearts, and, oh, yeah, yeah. and a whole bunch of others. Incredibly clever. I want to say whip smart. I say whip smart way too, way too much. But <laughs> the game is just so informed and intelligent. She and Jason Morningstar, I think, uh, you know, leading the indie scene in a really interesting way. I mean, narrative board games as well. There's a lot of really interesting work coming in out there, though. Uh, Tales of the Arabian Nights is a game originally from the 1980s. I don't know if you've come across it. I have heard of it, yeah. It's, it's completely bonkers. Yeah. I mean, as a board game, as a traditional board game, it completely fails because it ceases very quickly to be about who wins. It contains the Book of Tales, which in the current edition has, I think, 2,400 or 2,600 one-paragraph stories in it, which you can encounter as you explore the world and how, you know, meet genies and robber barons and fire-worshipping uh, makeyards. It's just, it's always a good time. It's always fun and funny around the table and what happens to people and the tragedies they undergo. It's a hoot, despite the fact that you will become grief-strunk and envious and scorned and probably lose a limb along the way. And there are little markers, little status markers for all of these things. Everyone has a good time. It's just, it's always fun. But I recommend it wholeheartedly. I mean, it's a big, heavy, expensive box of stuff. But as the type of game that no one else is... A few people have tried to do things similar, but it's still the finest of, of its field.
What is your sort of main top tip for any game developer who's interested in creating their own RPG? Ah, I, I mean, I don't think there's one core piece of advice other than stick at it and finish it. Don't be afraid to borrow. Don't feel that you have to create new and original mechanics or new and original bits. Games design is, is a tapestry of ideas that have gone before. Don't be afraid to get it wrong. Do play test, play test over and over again. Don't be afraid to make stuff up. I mean, that goes for GMing generally. If a rule isn't working, just change it on the fly or ignore it. The important thing is that the play experience works, not necessarily that the rules work. Mm. If you've got a play experience, but the rules are kind of hampering it, then try cutting away. Yeah, actually, that's a, a pretty good kind of core thing. There's a quote from, I want to say Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And he said, but perfection is achieved not when there is nothing left to add, but when there is nothing left to take away. For a long, long time, people thought role-playing game design was about adding more rules, about adding more content. And I think actually what the best story games are showing us is that actually you get the purest games experience when you strip stuff away and you strip the game back to its core experience and its core mechanics and just the heart of it. If you can just leave the heart of what makes it work, then you will have a very pure game experience that people will understand easily and thoroughly enjoy. Do you have any other projects in the works that you're able to talk about or sort of can give us hints at? I'm working on a whole bunch of stuff. I've got a bunch of card games. There's a couple of story games I'd like to do, and there's a couple of story games I've been offered to work on, which I can't tell you about because sure. they're, you know, they're up in the air, but really interesting prospects. But one of the main things, intending to set up a little imprint doing D&D 5th edition and Pathfinder and OG OSR style role-playing supplements, whether that's bits of background or short adventures or kind of rulesy stuff or just color text. Kind of 16, 24 pages, nothing very long, just do them as PDFs. And the primary driver for this is actually to give my games narrative students some professional credits. Mm. So they will be doing the bulk of the writing and I'll be kind of editing and guiding the manuscripts as they put them together and then we'll release these things on Drive-Thru RPG. I do love publishing. I do love putting books together, book layout and, you know, creating something like that and pushing it out there, seeing how people react to it and what people do with it. You know, you can't control a role playing game after you've released it. Mm. You have no control over how people are going to play it. And part of the joy is actually watching what people do with your ideas and where they take them. And once upon a time, it's been out there for 25 years now. And more and more games I see come out, and clearly influenced by it, but doing things with the idea of using cards to tell stories that we would never have thought of. I got one for review just the other day called Galactic Scoundrels, which is really clever. There's one coming out, kickstarting in April, called Tales from the Old Hellfire Club. That's a British game, which I am really looking forward to. I've got a playtest version of it. At its essence, the game, it's almost once upon a time meets Baron Munchausen, but set in the rip-roaring 18th, 19th century with scurrilous rogues um, telling tales of their, well, not so much foul deeds, but, you know, over-adventurous deeds. But in a way that I would never have thought of combining those two, two games. And that's the highest flattery there is, really, as a game designer. When someone takes one of your ideas and being brand new with it, that's just a fantastically upbeat feeling. <laughs> Where can we find your work and follow your exploits? Let's see. Once upon a time, available at all good games retail. Better online game shops than Amazon, but Amazon's just very ubiquitous. The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen, the same. Um, good game shops or online game stores. A Las Vegas, which is a four-session indie game with tarot-driven game mechanics that I'm really pleased with, and then a whole bunch of other scenario packs to use with the same rules. That's available on Drive Through RPG. A Las Vegas, that one. 
the company that's out from, which is my own imprint, is Magnum Opus Press. And under Magnum Opus Press, there's a whole bunch of kind of free downloads and little things. And the issues actually of interactive fantasy that I was talking about, they are now available as free PDFs that you can just download and see for nothing. I lecture, as I said, at London South Bank University. I do the Game Design Masterclass. It will be running, actually, at UK Games Expo, where I've got some sponsorship, so tickets will only be £15, whereas they're normally £30. It's a three-hour crash course in how to understand and design and create board games. And I've been doing it for off and on for about 10 years now, I think. Something like 1,500 people have been through the workshop now, so it's, I'm really pleased with it. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, that's about it. That's what's out there at the moment. Oh, and The Dorling Kindersley History of Board Games by Ian Livingston and James Wallace coming out in time for Christmas. I don't get royalties from its sale, but I'm intensely proud of what we've done with it. And this is a straightforward chronology going, board games invented 8,000 years ago. Here's how we get to the present day. As far as I know, no one's ever done that. It was a lot of work. And I think a lot of people will be amazed by a bunch of the things that we found and dug up within its pages. The little quirks and anecdotes about the history of games. Thank you so much for coming to speak to me. I know we've taken quite a lot of your Thursday evening after this conference. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a joy talking. And conversations like this really helped me put my own ideas in, in order and, and sort through for coming up with an expansion for Baron Munchausen in the middle of it, yeah. which I'll go away and write up now. I'm glad I helped in some way. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm hoping to do more of these special Q&A bonus episodes in future, including Q&As on the one-shots we've run here at What Am I Rolling? Yes, I know we've not done one for ages and I'm working on it. If you have a question you would like to send in or a submission for help my fictional RPG characters having difficulties, please send them along to our email address. That's whatamirollingpodcast at gmail.com. And that's it. Great. See you next time.